Chapter 1. Lie number 1. Jesus always had all authority in heaven and on earth. Our journey begins, oddly enough, at the end, for it is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that my journey began. So, I thought I would take you down the same path that I, Mark, have been on for several years now. Arguably, one of the most important places in the Gospel of Matthew is the 28th chapter, verses 18 through 20. This is called the Great Commission. However, a more appropriate title would be the Great Omission, since we have omitted the most important of these final instructions from Jesus. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus addressed his eleven disciples here at the end of Matthew and said something rather odd. It is only here at the end of his earthly residence, and only subsequent to his resurrection, that he declared to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A strange utterance this be, if one assumes that Jesus always had all authority in heaven and on earth. Why now? Why here at the end? Would that declaration not have been a little more useful when separated for four days from his parents when he was 12 years old. Mom, Dad, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Had you just asked me before you set out on your journey, you wouldn't have pulled this home alone blunder. How about when taking on the pharisaical regime? Listen, fellas, you need to stop acting like you own the joint. Please don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Or what about duking it out with the devil in the desert? Hell boy, zip it. Don't make me pull rank on you. I'm getting a little tired of these temptations you've been using. I am immune, so you're wasting your time. The question any reader of Matthew should have is, did Jesus indeed have all authority in heaven and on earth before this moment in Matthew 28? If so, why did he not execute said authority before now? He also said that it was all given to him, which begs the question, who had it before Jesus? If he did not possess all authority in both heaven and earth, why not? And who did? These are all worthy questions that demand good answers. Let's go back to Matthew. This time I want to take you to chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Here Jesus charges the disciples with a somewhat puzzling statement. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10 cannot be saying what we think it says for several very good reasons. We think that Jesus sent his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel who were all located in Israel. But because we do not use the Old Testament to define the terms in the New, we make connections that were never meant to be made. Jesus could not have sent his disciples to the land of Israel. Here is why. The First Testament is replete with passages describing the divided kingdom of Israel, 
calling the ten northern tribes the house of Israel, and the two southern tribes the house of Judah. The dispersion of the house of Israel, or diaspora, was when God swore to scatter the ten northern tribes like cockroaches in a boot factory. The house of Israel was to be punished by being carried off into captivity to all the nations of the world because of their unfaithfulness to him. But where does Christianity deduce that Jesus sent them in Matthew chapter 10? Well, he sent them back home. He just told them to avoid going anywhere among the Gentiles and to stay out of Samaria. How would this have been even remotely possible since the entire country of Israel was overrun with Gentiles, called the occupation of Rome? God said that the house of Israel were the unfaithful, judged, ten northern tribes that were scattered to all the nations. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, Isaiah 33, all through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk, and Zechariah. But Jesus said to go nowhere among the Gentiles, which included Samaria. Can you appreciate how confusing this would be to a Christian reading Matthew's account of Jesus sending his 12 disciples out to preach? So what was Jesus talking about? Who and where were the folks whom Jesus sent his disciples out to find? The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim... Set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north, a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them. And their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 7. So were the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who were scattered at one time, but who had since migrated back to the land of Israel? Were the lost sheep of the house of Israel another name for a Jewish person in Jesus' vocabulary? Or was a lost sheep of the house of Israel someone who was a descendant of one of the lost ten tribes of Israel, but who loved the Lord God, and desired to join himself to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never 
be forgotten, as Jeremiah chapter 50 clearly states. This charge that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 through 15 needs clarification and or explanation as it directly contradicts the continued instructions beginning in verse 16 and continuing through verse 23. Jesus sent the twelve out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, bidding them not to go anywhere among the Gentiles. Then in verse 18, they will be dragged before governors and kings and the Gentiles. Furthermore, the text never actually says that the twelve left on their journey, nor does it say they ever came back. Suddenly, in chapter 12, they all appear in a grain field plucking heads of grain, and Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. When did they come back? Where's the report? Mark chapter 6 says they left and returned. Luke chapter 9 says they left and returned. Luke chapter 10 says that 72 disciples left and returned. In each of these texts, the disciples left, returned, and reported to Jesus. Only in Matthew 10 is there no record of their departure, return, or report. Matthew 10 sounds an awful lot like it belongs between verses 8 and 9 of Acts chapter 1, or directly following Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. Whatever the case may be, there is no doubt that this exclusivist dispatch here in Matthew 10 did not sit well with Christians in latter centuries who did not consider themselves Jewish or even part of Israel. As fortune would have it, 18 chapters later, Jesus reversed this narrow mandate to include all of those little Gentiles he snubbed earlier in the account. If Jesus held all authority in heaven and on earth back in chapter 10 of Matthew, why did he not permit the twelve to go at that time beyond the borders of Israel and into the domain of the Gentiles? He obviously deemed the twelve disciples sufficiently prepared to go into many parts of their own country, just not to the Gentiles' arena? Any number of speculations and arguments could be made as to why Jesus waited until after his resurrection to send the disciples out amongst the foreign nations or the Gentiles. However, there is one reason that he clearly gave to preface this seemingly novel deployment into foreign lands. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, this must have been fairly important because it is the context inside of which Jesus charged the disciples with everything else he was about to say. Go on! This town ain't big enough for the eleven of you. Go and make disciples of all the rest of the world. Baptize them in the three names and teach them what I've taught you. I ain't going nowhere. Now go on, get. Well, something happened between Matthew chapters 10 and 28, which drastically expanded the limits from the borders of Israel to the four corners of the earth. But what? Let us zoom in carefully to what happened and why, because it's all about authority. The key master. Let's talk about authority. Keys have been a symbol of authority, not just in the Hebrew mind, but much closer to home in the American mind for as long as both cultures have inhabited their lands. 
Remember those old black and white TV shows where some character would do something heroic or save the day? He or she would be honored in a special procession, complete with a ceremony where the mayor of the town would give the hero a larger-than-life key to the city. Ask yourself, what did that key actually do? Was it to open a novelty oversized lock on a cartoonishly huge door? Of course not. It was a symbol. But a symbol of what? The World Wide Web claims that the key to the city idea originated in medieval times and that it allowed free access into and out of a walled city by the holder of the key. Free access into and out of a place is another way of describing authority. If I hold the key to the city, I have authority over certain aspects of that city, whether ingress or egress, safety or security. I hold a measure of authority that the average bear does not. Let us go back to the text to find out what Jesus meant by all authority in heaven and on earth. Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 records the following. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Emphasis mine. Here in John's vision of Judgment Day, Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. Despite what you've been taught, these keys are very likely real keys that open real doors. But they are also something more. What do they afford the key bearer? Access. Access equals authority. Jesus now has the authority to open and close the two gates. Death, the first gate, must be a portal that is locked in some way presumably from the outside. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he literally walked out of death, but he was still in the place of the dead called Sheol in Hebrew, Hades in Greek. Both words describe the same place where the dead go. Jesus was able to walk out of Hades without any sort of tether, something which no other person in all of history, was able to do. You see, when someone died, as recorded in the Bible, and she was raised to life, she was not resurrected in the strictest sense of the word, but merely resuscitated. What is meant by resuscitated? What I mean is a temporary reanimation of the person, because whomever was raised from the dead always died again. Lazarus, in John 11, died again. The widow's son that Elijah raised died again. So did the young man that Jesus raised from the dead in the little town of Nain. Gazelle, or Dorcas, was reanimated in Acts, but she, no doubt, died again. None of the aforementioned were truly resurrected from the dead with new bodies not made with human hands. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. So, how did Jesus get the keys to death and Hades? And if he obtained them after his resurrection, who had them before? 
One of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that Jesus always had all authority in heaven and on earth because he was Jesus or God's son. But that is simply not true. The Second Testament claims as much. Who had the keys before Jesus? Luke chapter 4 verses 5 through 7 may be a clue. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Emphasis mine. When the Nachash, or serpent, deceived Adam and Eve, which led to their transgression of a direct command of God, they sinned. For that is the definition of sin as per Romans 5.13, Romans 7.7-8, and 1 John 3 and verse 4. Once they sinned or broke God's law, his Torah, they walked out of God's kingdom and into another's. That portal opened up an unimaginably massive can of worms for all humanity. Sin is a gateway, quite literally. Death waits behind a door. Notice in the verse above that death came into the world through sin. We've seen this theme in the movies for decades. A portal is opened here on earth which leads to another dimension. The reward is high, but the stakes are higher. You see, once the portal is opened, the cosmic wager that all of humanity gambles is that someone or something will not cross over to earth from the other side. Romans 5 and verse 12 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Therefore, every single human that sinned, sins, or will sin, walks through the same portal or gateway which allowed death access to Adam, Eve, and all humanity. Remember, a key is access. Access equals authority, and authority equals access access. When Adam and Eve gave their authority or access to the devil rather than to God by obeying one lawgiver over the other, they genuinely handed the key to the devil who opened the locked door so that death could destroy all humanity. Adam and Eve did not die in that moment, but once they sinned, Death laid legal claim over them, and they were, sooner or later, bound for another locked realm called Hades, or Sheol. If the devil did not legally possess the keys to death and Hades, or the authority over all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus would have been well within his rights to rebuke him then and there during that temptation for his lies and remind him, that it is He, Jesus Messiah, who truly has dominion over the kingdoms of the world. Yet, that did not happen. 
In this case, the devil was not lying. He indeed had authority over all the kingdoms of the world. That means that legally, he had territorial rights to all earthly kingdoms, including the one located in Israel. But what is meant by the word kingdom? There are, at a minimum, three elements needed in order for a kingdom to exist. First, every kingdom needs a king. This is an entity who has authority to enforce a law, doubtlessly his own. Next, the king needs a place to execute his law, called a territory. And finally, no kingdom would be complete without persons living under the law of the king. In short, a kingdom is any place where the king's will, which is his law, is done by his subject. This idea is clearly revealed by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the relationship between the kingdom and the will of the Father. Stay with me here because learning this one concept will unlock much of the First Testament's treasures. This is classic Hebrew synonymous parallelism. Parallelism is not just a poetic structure in Hebrew literature, but also a literary device. Hebrew parallelism is the repetition of ideas rather than sounds. In English, we rhyme sounds, as in the childhood Roses are Red poems. Roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. That would be a violation of the rhyming technique, and that's why it's funny. (laughs) It should be, roses are red, violets are blue, honey is sweet, and so are you. All roses or red variations should rhyme the sound of the final word in the second and fourth lines. Hebrew parallelism does not rhyme sounds. Parallelism rhymes concepts or ideas. For example, Jeremiah 31:34 says, "For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." Forgiveness of their iniquity is not acting on or remembering their sin. Psalm 104 and verse 2. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Being clothed with splendor and majesty is covering himself with light. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. I've been asked many times in my life what it means to fear God. Here, it is actually defined for us. To fear God is to keep his commands. Now, read Jesus' prayer again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom comes when his will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. When his will and his will alone is done on earth, that is when his kingdom will be fully established. Therefore, 
the kingdoms of the world, to which the devil referred in Luke 4, cannot be geographical, but rather spiritual. In Luke 4, the devil's will is being done everywhere that God's will is not. When God's will is done by you or me, we bring the kingdom of God to earth in actuality. But when the devil's will is done by you and me, we give more and more square footage away to the ruler of this world, the prince of the air. Every human being is a son or daughter of Adam. That just means that he or she is one like Adam, also known as a human being. Humans either obey God's will, law, or they do not. If they do not, their kingdom does not belong to God, but to another. So, if humans obey a law or a will other than the Creator's, their obedience is a territory or a kingdom over which the devil has authority. It's that simple. This makes perfect sense when the entire passage of Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, is read in context. You see, the devil will give the authority over the destinies of all peoples in all kingdoms over which he currently has control. If Jesus will simply give his authority of the kingdom of heaven over to him, he would do this by worshiping the devil. To worship the devil would simply be to do his will. Were Jesus to bow down and worship the devil, then the devil would have all authority in heaven and on earth. And friends, the future of this world would be a terrifying realm of atrocity upon atrocity without a shred of hope. To see yet again that keys are indeed a picture of authority in the Hebrew mind, Let's go to Matthew 16 and verse 19. Here, Jesus states the following to his oldest disciple, Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is authority, my friends. Binding and loosing are legal terms for how a law and judgment are to be executed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the same term loosing that was translated relaxes, as in whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least among those in the kingdom of heaven. How do you loose a commandment? Easy. You soften or weaken it to a point that you may define it however you like. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. The access or keys to which Jesus is referring in Matthew 16 is a reference to the authority that Jesus is leaving with Peter, specifically regarding halakha, which is a Hebrew word meaning a path that one walks. It seems that Jesus is telling Peter that he will be instrumental in legal rulings based wholly upon Jesus' interpretation and teaching of how to walk out the Torah in daily life. Where do we get this? We get this from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is also known as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 17, and throughout the rest of the sermon, encompassing chapters 6 and 7, Jesus interprets the Torah correctly while demolishing the takanot, 
or man-made doctrines. In this case, doctrines of the Pharisees that had been firmly established by the first century. The reality is that Jesus has the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and he will give those keys to Peter. Jesus does not, however, hold the keys of the kingdoms of earth at this point in his life. For that authority, he must wait. Binding the strong man. When Jesus defended himself in Mark chapter 3 against the indictment of the Jerusalem Torah scholars, he did so beautifully, logically, and with tremendous skill. Christianity has misunderstood the parable of the thief and the strong man told in Luke 11, verses 20 through 22, Mark 3, 27, and Matthew 12, 29. Christians have traditionally identified Jesus as the strong man in the short parable. But why? Because admitting oneself into another's house without permission in order to plunder goods, also known as breaking and entering, is not typically seen as a very nice thing to do, especially for the, you know, son of God. In fact, it is the kind of thing done by thieves, robbers, and burglars. So, why does Jesus end his defense against the claims that he and Satan are in a partnership with this parable? What does it mean? I believe verse 27 of Mark chapter 3 to be foreshadowing incredible things to come. The parable of the strong man may be the only reason that the disciples were not authorized to enter Gentile territory until after Jesus' resurrection. The argument of the Torah teachers from Jerusalem goes something like this. Premise A. Jesus had claimed things that only God could substantiate through the use of miracles. Premise B. Miracles were performed through Jesus that allegedly proved his claims. Premise C. His claims were false. Conclusion? Therefore, his miracles were not from God, but from Satan. Jesus' defense. Satan cannot defeat himself. A house that is divided cannot stand. Premise B. Demons were cast out. Premise C. If Satan cast out Satan, his house is divided. Conclusion. Therefore, Jesus was not working with Satan, but with God. Parable breakdown. Strong man equals Satan. Strong man's house, Satan's authority, that which he currently rules. Binding the strong man, rendering Satan impotent. Plunder, releasing, or reclaiming that which belongs to another. Goods, those are the people. Jesus said no one can enter a strong man's house Satan's territory, unless he first binds the strong man. That is, unless he first binds Satan. Jesus will not only enter Satan's territory, but he will bind him and render him powerless. Only then can the robber plunder his goods. When Satan is fully bound by Jesus, he will not only release All the people kept under Satan's power through various diseases, illnesses, and possessions. 
but he will kick open the doors to Hades and give death a swift roundhouse in the face and plunder every single human who has ever been locked under death in Hades since the beginning of all things. This is a clear reference to the resurrection of the dead. In Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, it is not until the 8th chapter and verse 26 that Jesus and his disciples go outside of the confines of Israel. He had not yet stepped foot on Gentile territory until that moment. Jesus had healed those who had come to him for help, but he had not yet gone out on the offensive. If you read both accounts of this same narrative in Luke 8 and in Mark 5, notice that the disciples never got out of the boat. They never actually trespassed on the devil's turf, so to speak. However, Jesus not only got out of the boat to address the demoniac, but he masterfully cast an entire legion of demons out of the man and set him free. Free from what? Free to what? These are good questions that have much to do with lie number one. Jesus always had all authority in heaven and on earth. Let freedom ring. What is freedom? Adam and I both taught high school apologetics for a combined 20 years. Each time we asked our students, what does freedom mean to you? we would get a rather odd answer. Most students responded that freedom is the ability to do whatever I want. I would ask a follow-up question like, do you want to be free? The answer, yes, Mr. Dean. Then I would say, do you think that I should be free like you? Why, yes, Mr. Dean. That is when I would usually knock one of their books onto the floor take the pencil out of their hands and snap it in two, take the red pen out of my pocket and write a giant F on her paper, or send one of them to the office, telling him, I don't like you. Of course, this would get a huge reaction, but with my poker face, the giggling would stop promptly. You like that? Not really, they would say. To which I would reply, freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want. That's called anarchy. Freedom is the opportunity to do the right thing. That usually sent the point home fairly quickly. Jesus set the demoniac free from the bonds of the devil so that he might choose whom his Lord would be. You see, before Jesus died, was resurrected, and repossessed, what rightfully belonged to mankind in the first place, the former demoniac had little hope and no choice. He was a slave to the master of the domain. The best he could hope for was a quiet night in a graveyard and a scab or two over the self-inflicted wounds that he instigated as a result of being overwhelmed by a myriad of demons. He was an avatar, a puppet, a sleeve into whom those of real power had inserted themselves, the demons. But as a Ben-Adam, or a son of Adam, a human being, 
He should not have been the property of the evil one, but rather of God the Father. Jesus set him free so that he might have the opportunity to do the right thing on earth. Do you know what the right thing is? It is what is always done in heaven, the Father's will. And so it was, he begged Jesus that he might accompany him out of his country and out of his plight. The answer? Nope. Go home to your friends and tell them how much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The Second Testament records two miraculous feedings of large multitudes in the wilderness. One occurs in Israel. The other, the Decapolis, physical headquarters to the satanic realm. It is where Mount Hermon is, and it is where the ten cities, Decapolis, the Decapolis, were located, that lived exactly opposite the way that God instructed. 4,000 men were present at that miraculous feeding. I suppose at least 3,000 women and just as many children were also present. Jesus fed them all with seven loaves and a few small fish. Your question and mine should be, why would upwards of 10,000 people follow a small-town itinerant Jewish rabbi whom they've never seen or heard into the wilderness? Unless they had heard that the really weird guy the one who used to live in the tombs, was healed. He's sacking groceries at the supermarket. The same one. He's lucid, pleasant, and he can't stop talking about this Jesus character who changed his entire life. Jesus is the one human in all of history that had the only legal right to trespass onto the devil's territory. That is, encounter those sons and daughters of Adam and Eve and release them from the facade of the reality they were living, that only the worship of the gods would give them life. Of course, any god other than the one true god is nothing more than a demon in the gang of evil spirits playing for the other side. Remember, if you do anyone else's will other than God's, You do not reside in the kingdom of heaven. Peter? Oh, he transgressed the Torah. Andrew? He broke the law of Moses. Philip? Lawbreaker. Thomas? Sinner. Judas? Transgressor of the law. In fact, not one of Jesus' disciples was not guilty of breaking God's commands. Yet their will, their desire, was to do God's will. How were the disciples any different from any other resident of the Galilee or of Judea? They were not any different. But what separated those living in Israel from those living in the rest of the world was their desire to do the will of God. That is, to keep God's commands. The rest of the world had either no knowledge of those commands or no desire to keep them, having been blinded by a perception that their gods would save them and bring them life. Jesus did not always have all authority in heaven and on earth. 
So why did Jesus not send out the twelve before his resurrection? It is my opinion that only subsequent to Jesus' resurrection, through the binding of the strong man and in the defeat of death, did Jesus legally take back the keys that Adam and Eve relinquished to the serpent, the keys being their dominion and authority over the whole earth, the self-same authority that God originally gave to them in Genesis 1 and verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Emphasis mine. Why did Jesus state that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him? The answer may lie in the reason that before he took back the keys of the kingdoms of the earth from the devil, he could not legally send his disciples to the nations. But once he got the keys the authority and access to the kingdoms of the earth that Adam and Eve once held. It was go time. Now he would set free those sold under sin to death. Now even the Gentiles would have a chance to choose who their king would be. For it is now Jesus and not the devil who holds the keys to death and Hades. This is why Jesus is able to promise life eternal in him and him alone.